In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Two years ago today, I, I almost didn't do this, but I'm going to do it. Two years ago today, Hillary Clinton said something that made the news. So we were in the throes of the election cycle. Um, neither candidate was above reproach by far. But at this event, two years ago, literally tonight, September 9th, 2016, Hillary Clinton uh, said this, you could put half of Trump's supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Now, you might remember that because it got a lot of attention, as you could imagine. And without being political here at all, and certainly not to assume that the other candidate was above such a statement, um, you know, it made the news because the question was, does she really think this? Or was this just the slip? What, what happened? I mean, she just referred to some amount of the voting public as deplorables, right? And, and I'm sure all Trump supporters took it personally and perhaps others also who might be from those regions of the so-called deplorables. But anyway, the point is, is that, you know, everyone asks, is this what she really thinks? Is this what she, the woman who wants to be the president of the United States, is this really what she thinks of some number of the people that she would be the president of? More importantly, do we think that about people, right? Do we, do we think there's the, the deplorables? You know, when I, when I grew up in Virginia in the 70s, and particularly in the 80s, everyone broke down into nice categories. And if you've ever watched the John Hughes film, you know how this works, right? Especially like The Breakfast Club or something like that. You've got the geek, you've got the jock, you've got the weirdo, you've got the, the privileged princess or whatever. And so um, the drug addict, I guess, was the other one. And so um, we, we had those kinds of categories growing up as teenagers in Virginia. I won't tell you which one I was in, but, um, or what we called the other ones for that matter, and probably what they called us. But I mean, there is this way in which we as human beings sometimes adopt this thinking that like, well, that's not me. I'm not like them, or those people are different. Right? And so we, we sometimes uncharitably think of them a certain way. On top of that, you know, Christine and I have moved around a lot for, for education's sake. And, and so we, we have an insight into different cultures. I'm a southerner by birth. Christina's kind of a, a light New Englander, I guess, uh, by birth, you know. But then we lived in Dallas, and then we got to go live up in Minnesota, and then we left the country and got to experience Canada, A. Eh? And so and then we came out here. To California and of all places in California, the southern part of the state, right? So, so we've had this insight and, and we have, you know, jokes that aren't disparaging of people, but we have things we've picked up over the years from different cultures, right? So we'll reference things a certain way in our home and anyone who's hung out with the Peters long enough knows that we kind of do this thing. And so um, we don't say certain words the way they probably should be said. We say them the way they were said in certain regions of the country that we lived in or maybe in other countries. But again, that's not so much thinking of those people as deplorable, but it's noting the difference, the otherness of these people, right? And then picking up on something that's, that's totally normal to them. I remember when I moved away from Virginia and I would say certain things and people would chuckle right? Because where I came from, everyone said the same word the same way. It just happened to be wrongly sometimes. And I was out there now in the grown-up world repeating these words wrongly, and people were laughing at me. I mean, including on the top of the Eiffel Tower in France. I had non-English-speaking French people laugh 
at the way I said something in English, which might say more about the French than it does about me, but still, like, come on, I'm, I'm on the Eiffel Tower. I'm not even in my own country. Leave me alone. This is how I was raised to say things, right? But again, how do we think of other people? How do we relate to other people? So tonight's readings give us this opportunity to really think and reflect yet again on something that's very basic. And that is the relationship of our faith to good works, which means our faith in relationship to how we treat other people. So not good works generically, as if that doesn't involve other people, but our faith in relationship to other people. James is perhaps the passage read for us tonight that's the most obvious about that, right? The famous, the famous text that Luther could hardly get his mind around and led him to think, this James passage, the book just needs to go away. It's a straw epistle, right? In other words, it would burn up if you put a flame to it, right? And so James challenges us in this way in particular. So tonight's lessons, I think, could not be more clear when read together. There is a close, no, there's even an essential relationship between our faith and our actions. In particular, we must, because of our faith, love and care for all persons, no matter their race, gender, socioeconomic status, etc. So whatever ways we could modify thinking about other people, the texts are telling us tonight we need to care for all persons, right? In other words, there's a, there's a way in which as people of faith we are to relate to people who are just different than us. And of course, we're, there's, a, there's a way we're supposed to relate to people who are just like us, right? I mean, that, that's my point, that even though I'm from this one part of Virginia, we still had in our high school, and I mean, it, it goes beyond high school. We all know this. It's not just high school kids being high school kids. This is the way adults think, too. Even though we're all from the same area, oh, well, there's the people that live up the mountain. I still hear that on occasion from my mom in a phone call. Well, you know, it's because the people up on the mountain, <laughs> you know, which is... I know exactly what she means. You know, I, I, I know what she's trying to say about the people up on the mountain. So, um, so we still do that. But tonight, again, James is just telling us that, like, look, there is a relationship between your faith and the way you act, a relationship between you, your faith, and other people. And there's only one way you're supposed to act in light of that, in light of that and that's impartially. In other words, another way we could say this is people come first once we become a person of faith. And I want to keep coming back to that. The text is presuming that we're people of faith. It is not laying down expectations for being a human in general. It's laying down expectations for how people of faith are supposed to behave. The proper treatment of people is not the faith, right? It's the result of our faith. And that's important because I think there's a tendency these days to reduce our faith to a certain kind of behavior or a certain commitment to a number of causes, and that's your faith, right? How could you be a person of faith if you don't stand for this particular issue? But that is not what James is saying. James says, first and foremost, we're people of faith. And because of that, from that, as a result of that, now there's a way that we are to behave, right? These are not unrelated, but they're not essentially connected in the one sense of being necessary to being people of faith. We can have a dead faith, the text goes on to talk about, right? So there is a sense where you could be a person of faith, albeit dead, and not treat people well. Like, you can do that. Treating people well is a sign of faith, not the essence of the faith. Leo the Great in the early church said, quote, while faith provides the basis for works, the strength of faith comes out only in works. 
right? So the faith provides the basis for works, and the strength of our faith comes out in our works, right? And this is, this is what the Bible teaches in more than one place. How will you know them? By their works. You look at a person's works, and then you can make some sort of estimate, judgment even, if you will, about their faith. Thomas Cranmer, the architect of the Book of Common Prayer, wrote this, quote, Faith may not be naked, that is, without works, for then it is no true faith. And when it is adjoined to works, yet it is above the works. For as people who are people indeed first have life, and after life are then nourished, so must our faith in Christ go before and afterwards be nourished with good works. Right, so what Thomas is doing there is he's saying, look, you're born first and then you nourish the body. That's what James is trying to say. You're a person of faith first and then the works grow from that and nourish it. He concludes by saying a person must be nourished by good works, but first a person must have faith. So first and foremost, we're talking about being people of faith. And from that, we're talking about being people of good works, people who are in proper relationship with other people. So let's look at James a little more closely. So this text from James chapter 2, James begins by saying, My brothers and sisters, show no partiality. Stop playing favorites. Right? Favoritism has no place in the church. In fact, he goes on to say, you're making distinctions. Right? And his example is a pertinent one, even in our day, but even more so in his day, because the gulf between the rich and the poor in the first century was one of real life and death. Right? Not that it's not today, but it, it had a greater consequence in those days. It was clearly like those who have and maybe even are Roman citizens versus those who don't have and maybe aren't Roman citizens. So he makes the point of simply saying, like, what does it mean when someone who's dressed nice and is of the right family comes into your church and you go out of your way to make sure they have a good seat. And then someone else comes in and they're not dressed so nice and they're not from the right family and, and you just kind of say like, well, sit, you can sit in that corner or heck, for that matter, you could sit at my feet. Right? James is saying, what is, it, what is it saying about your faith when you behave that way? And he's saying like, there's a problem with your faith if you're behaving that way. That is, that your faith is dead at best, if not absent altogether. Right? And so that the, the point is to say, like, look, you can't, you can't dishonor the poor man and honor the rich man, right? You have to treat everyone the same. They all have to be treated with great honor. Then he continues to say, to sin in one part, in fact, of the law is to break the whole law. So he backs out a little bit and says, look, you can't show partiality, but let's actually think this in terms of the law. If you break one commandment of the law, aren't you breaking them all? Right? He has a point. That's the point of the law, that to break one, to transgress one part of the law, is to transgress all the law. Right? In other words, just because you're not committing adultery, but perhaps murdering, you're breaking the law, or vice versa, or pick another part of the law. Right? In, any, in either case, you've become a transgressor of the law, and therefore you're going to be judged for that behavior. And again, he says here, if you show partiality, so he's coming back to that favoritism, if you think some people are worthy of treating one way and other people are worthy of being treated a different way, that's wrong and it actually goes against the law. 
no matter what you say. So then he concludes by saying, what good is it then, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And I think his answer is rhetorical. It's like, it's no good. That faith is no good. Now, we might think, no, that faith is super valuable. That person gets to be saved. That person gets to spend eternity in heaven. But that's, that's thinking too individualistically. Sorry, that's a little too 21st century. Right? James would say, like, I don't care that you claim to be a person of faith. If you're going to behave this way, are you really a person of faith? Can that faith save him again? The rhetorical question, I think James is saying no, because it's not a real faith. Or it's something you're calling faith, but it's not. For if a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Then he ends with verse 17, the, the, the famous verse, if you will, the one that I think Luther in particular wrestled with. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So you may have faith, it's just a dead faith. And what good is a dead faith? James says it's no good. So in order to be people of faith, we have to be people that aren't just doing works, but our faith has to be evidence in those works. We have to be doing good works. This is not an option. This is you know, something that we are required to do, but I don't even want to say it's doing. It's something that would, of course, grow out of that faith. So if you're not doing good works, you don't start with, why aren't I doing good works? You should start with the question, am I a person of faith? Because people of faith do good works. So we have several examples laid out for us in these perfectly paired readings tonight. Jesus in Mark's gospel uh, First thing to note is the second healing is one of the most embodied healings that Jesus ever does, and it's only recorded by Mark. Spitting, right, and sticking his fingers into someone's ears, right? So this very embodied thing, but, but I hope you heard the first woman that Jesus encounters is a Gentile, the text tells us. She's a Syrophoenician by birth, and she comes because her daughter has a demon, and he wants, she wants her daughter to be delivered, and, and, and Jesus says to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, I hope you were thinking about that when you heard it, or if you're familiar with this text. What Jesus is saying is, I've come first to the, to the Israelites. That's the people who are God's chosen people. So therefore, I need to feed those children first. It would be wrong for me to feed you the Gentile dog. That's what Jesus is saying, Right? it would be wrong to throw it to the dogs. Now, most people wouldn't have stuck around much longer than that, but, but this woman responds not with disgust or not with anguish or not with an accusation of how dare you claim to be the son of God and talk to me this way. No, she simply said, um, she said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And Jesus immediately recognized that as a sign of her faith. And he heals her daughter instantaneously, apparently, in that moment. The moment she sees, that he sees that she's a person of faith, he heals the daughter. Then immediately we get a story of a man who presumably is a Jew, only because we're not told otherwise, and Mark seems to be interested in telling us if he wasn't a Jew. Right? So he's been deaf and has a speech impediment, and they're begging Jesus to lay hands on him. 
And Jesus, you know, wants to do this quietly, right? If you know anything about Mark, it's Jesus kind of trying to keep a secret the whole time, right? But no one else wants him to keep the secret, so it's kind of Jesus's attempt only to keep a secret, right? So he takes the man aside, and again, he puts his fingers in his ears, and he spits and touches his tongue, right? Kind of very strange, uh, even for Jesus, I think. And then he looks up to heaven, and he says, be open. Guys could hear. He could speak plainly. Jesus says, don't tell anyone. They run off and tell everyone, right? The normal kind of thing. But again, there's this faith of the people who bring the man to Jesus and say, can you heal him? They beg him, the text tells us, to heal him. And so we see in both of those instances that, that Jesus is kind of putting, right, the works onto the faith. Now, I realize this is Jesus. He's the son of God. Of course, he's a person of faith. Of course, he's God, right? But he's demonstrating for us how to behave, how to treat other people. And so I always say to people, well, you always have to be careful using Jesus as the example. Well, because it's Jesus. So tonight, I want to use a different example that's a little closer to home. Um, today is a feast day, and it's the feast, uh, feast of what's uh, labeled as Constance and her companions. In August 1878, yellow fever was ravaging the city of Memphis. And it was the third time it had done this in 10 years. By the month's end of August 1878, the disease had become an epidemic and a quarantine was ordered. While 30,000 citizens had fled Memphis, because they were just thinking we're going to die if we stay here in Memphis, 20,000 more people stayed, forced to kind of face this pestilence. As cases multiplied, death toll averaged about 200 people every day were dying. When the worst was over, 90, over 90% 90 of the people had contracted the fever, and more than 5,000 people had died. In that time of panic and flight, and I'm reading this from what's called the Lesser Feast and Fast, by the way, many brave men and women, both lay and, and, and cleric, remained at their post of duty or came as volunteers to assist during this terrible epidemic. Notable among these heroes were Constance, superior of the work of the Sisters of St. Mary, um, an Anglican religious order, and her companions. The sisters had come to Memphis in 1873 at the bishop's request to found a girls' school adjacent to the cathedral. When the 1878 epidemic began, George Harris, the cathedral dean, and Sister Constance immediately organized relief work among the stricken. Helping were six of Constance's fellow sisters of St. Mary, um, Sister Claire from St. Margaret's House, Boston, who had come to help, uh, a man by the name of Charles Parsons, rector of Grace and St. Lazarus Church in Memphis, and the, uh, Father Louis Schuler, um, assistant at Holy, uh, Holy Innocence in Hoboken, New Jersey. This cathedral group also included three physicians, two of whom were also ordained priests, and two of the sisters' uh, uh, friends and several volunteer nurses from New York. They've ever since been known as the martyrs of Memphis, as, um, as, as have those of the other, um, others who died during this time. Now, the cathedral buildings were located in the most infected region of Memphis. Now, remember, this is August in Memphis. You ever been in the south in August, pre-air conditioning days? I have never been there pre-air conditioning days. I've just lived in military buildings in the south in August that didn't have air conditioning, right? Here, amid sweltering heat and scenes of indescribable horror, these men and women of God gave relief to the sick, comfort to the dying, and homes to the many orphan children. Only two of those workers I just listed survived. 
Among those who died were Constance, Tecla, Ruth and Frances, some of her sisters, the Reverend Charles Parsons, and Father Louis Schuler. The six martyred sisters and the priest are buried in Elmwood Cemetery there in Memphis. And there's a monument that marks their grave that simply says this, greater love hath no man. And of course we know what the rest of that verse is. And he who lays down his life for his friends. And the high altar in St. Mary's Cathedral in Memphis is a memorial to the four sisters. So as we think about something much closer to home, that these people who had only relocated to Memphis five years before by invitation from the bishop probably had never signed up to come to Memphis, one, to maybe care for people sick with yellow fever, much less to contract it themselves and to die. But what did they do? They died. They stayed in there and put works to their faith. And we commemorate them today. September 9th, each year because of the sacrifice. So we have Jesus healing people. We have Constance and her companions bringing comfort and care to those at death's door, dying themselves as a result. And then finally, let me just turn our attention as we wrap up tonight to this parish to bring it really close to home. Now, we are a parish, of course, who reads the Bible, who reads the gospel and understands that, yes, works should follow faith. I hope that is evident to all of us. My sense is, knowing I think most everyone in this room, that we are all involved in some work that is likely an outgrowth of our faith. But last year at the clergy senate, the bishop announced to the clergy that he wanted each parish to have a discipleship plan in place. And so we, as a vestry, uh, well, I should say, let me back up. We, as a vestry, received a discipleship plan last week. I asked Monica and Matthew Green to kind of spearhead this. They worked with uh, Megan, with Jessica, with Micah, who's now in Oxford. That was everyone, right? It was the four M's and Jessica. And, um, and they uh, put together what I think is an amazing vision and discipleship plan for this church um, which we will send uh, up to the, to the bishop as requested, and then which we're going to make available to all of us because it is about this very thing. It is about being people of faith who then do good works, not because we're not doing it, not because we have not evidence that our faith leads to works, but because as a parish, we want to help focus some of these energies. We want to open up new avenues, perhaps, of the way that we can live out our faith in this community and in this parish. And again, this is not now a sign-up sheet that's going to be on the back table and you sign up and, and you have to get involved in something and we're checking to make sure you're all doing it. No, it, it is always one of those things where we want the Holy Spirit to move you to perhaps get involved in something. And again, you might be thinking, I need to add something else on top of it. I don't know. That's between you and God. But maybe... But what we want to do is get it out to you, and it will be getting out to you soon, and give you opportunity to act on this, to, to think about these very passages that we've read tonight and to ask God, God, what do you want me to do? Is my faith evident in my works? Again, to, to quote Leo the Great, while faith produces the basis for works, the strength of faith comes only in our works. So again, we have Jesus modeling this for us as always. Think of Constance and her companions, and then ask God, to show you where you can get involved when you see that discipleship plan. I'm excited about 
what, what those folks have put together. I, it's one of the best decisions I've made in a long time was to keep my hands off of something. I try to do that a lot, to be honest with you. I don't need to be doing everything. I don't own things in that way. But I was so impressed by the work that that committee did, and I'm excited about how God worked through them and how I think he's going to lead us through this discipleship plan as a parish. So again, when you see that, don't dismiss it as Father Greg or the vestry or the parish is now asking me to do more on an already full life, already full schedule, already overcommitted existence that so many of us lead. But instead, take that and pray about it. Think about this text. Ask God, God, where does my faith need to have works? And is there anything on this plan that can be some of these works that you've laid on, giving me the power to do? And as we do that, we will walk forward as people of faith, but people who have faith and then act on that faith, and people will see those good works. And they will give glory to God in heaven. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.